Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. In this episode, we are going to be talking about food and relationships with food, especially among women. My guest today is Isabel Fox and Duke. She's the creator of Stop Fighting Food, a video training series and masterclass for women who want to stop feeling crazy around food. After years of trying to overcome binge eating disorder through weight normative approaches, Isabel discovered the critical role of acceptance, surrender, and social inquiry into the binge eating recovery process, and has been sharing her insights with clients and professionals ever since. She's a thought leader in intuitive eating and body positive movement, and I wanted to bring her on the show because I know a lot of women who struggle with alcohol also struggle with food, body image, diet culture, and disordered eating. So Isabel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Yeah, I'm excited because this is something that comes up all the time, not only with my clients who are stopping drinking and seeing what life is like without alcohol, but honestly, 
everywhere in my life with my friends growing up. Every woman I know has a very complicated relationship with their body and with food. Yep. Yep. I think there's a statistic out there, something like, you know, 85% of women have at one point on in their life been on some kind of diet. 85% of women have had, you know, struggle with some sort of body image uh, challenge of some kind. I wouldn't be surprised if the number was actually higher than that. Um, it is really embedded in our culture. And so I think that, you know, I'm just really glad to be able to, to chat about it because I think, you know, it's a spectrum of how much different women struggle with this, but everyone is touched by it in our culture. So I'm very thrilled to do this. Yeah. And I think some women, I mean, most women I know, myself included, have gone on many diets, you know, like <laughs> over the yeah. course of our lives of like cycling up and cycling down and our weight and always trying to weigh less. But sometimes, it's so embedded that you don't even realize that you're editing your food choices really unconsciously based on your conditioning. Yeah. Everyone basically is told that just watching your weight essentially in quotes in some way, shape or form is just the normal way to live. That's just how we should all be living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is incredible to me to think about what numbers of people live that way. And it's just considered completely normal in our culture. And it's very rarely questioned. It's like, well, of course I do. The assumption is if I'm not doing that, I will just like gain weight forever and die and all these horrific catastrophic things will happen to me, right? There's a lot of fear around food in our culture, increasingly so even in the past like 25 or so years, it's gotten kind of more intensely fear based around this conversation. So yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that this is, you know, I think there's a really, really solid group of women, maybe even, you know, 50% of women, something like that. I don't know the exact figure, but I think there's a good portion of women who just haven't just been on a diet. They live chronically on some sort of low grade restrictive something. Yeah. And it's just part of their life that they don't even think about as being optional. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, you know, tied in with health or what you should do. I mean, I worked at L'Oreal for years and you know, it was just normal that people would be like, oh, I'm doing a juice cleanse for this week. I do it three times a year and like five women would do it with them or, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting. I don't eat between X and Y. It was not even almost considered a diet. It was just considered something one does. Yep. Exactly. That's certainly how I felt. I mean, I remember I was, you know, part of my story is very early on. I was put on my first diet by a pediatrician when I was three. This is no. like sort of a part of my story that I always tell. It kind of always starts with, you know, me being literally a baby and being put on my, uh, on my first diet because I was high on the baby BMI scale or whatever. And therefore, right, I don't really have memories of not being on a diet. I mean, I think, and I have many clients in this boat where they got the message at such a young age that their bodies were not okay that the way they were and that they, you know, they needed to eat less in order to control their bodies. Many women got that message at such a young age that they don't even have a memory of having a quote unquote, truly normal relationship with food where they just sort of eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full and don't worry about it too much. It's always, they've always lived with some sort of like chronic level of trying to control, probably losing control at certain points along the way um, and just sort of oscillating in that sort of up and down, you know, control, losing control, control, losing control cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of similar to people who struggle with drinking and sort of don't have an off switch or just drink more than they want to. 
it dominates like every hour of every day of your thoughts in sort of this low grade way that you don't even realize how much brain space and emotional energy it takes. Exactly. Like I often describe it for folks who are just sort of chronically restricting or chronically watching their weight or, you know, whatever kind of term you want to put in there, right? Not everyone relates to the term dieting, but most people relate to the term, you know, oh, I'm just watching what I eat or oh, I'm just, I'm just eating healthy, healthy or whatever right? the thing is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Most people are doing that. I call it like the, the food ticker tape in the back of my brain at all times, right? It's yeah. just sort of, I could be, you know, going on about my life, dealing with work, dealing with kids, whatever. But this is just this sort of, you know, low level ticker tape in the back that's just, you know, constantly there sort of monitoring what I'm eating or judging what I'm eating or thinking about what I'm eating or, you know, criticizing myself in the mirror or whatever. It's just sort of the background noise to my life is this sort of like food weight noise that's just sort of lives there in the background yeah, pretty constantly for a lot of women. Completely. And that's just how I went about my life. And, and still, you know, I told you I'm not totally there yet. It still happens to me probably 25 times a day. I got introduced to your work through my sober bestie, Ingrid, who's actually been on this podcast. And, um, you know, we stopped drinking within two months of each other six years ago. And Mm. once we stopped drinking, you know, almost everyone who drinks has some reason that they want to check out, right? Or some reason they Mm. want to turn off their brain or some reason it works for them other than it's just totally addictive. And so we, Ingrid and I both went through sort of separate struggles, support, things like that after we stopped drinking. Uh, For me, it was sort of deep anxiety and and work and imposter syndrome and all that stuff. And for her, she found you and loved your work. And just, you know, once she stopped drinking, the next thing she had to dig into was her lifelong struggle with body image and weight and dieting and all that stuff. She's been educating me for the past six years. And I, you know, I almost was like just moving through life completely and totally unconscious of diet culture, like literally just thought it was what it was like, just realized. And I completely bought into it. And I'm still, you know, it's like getting away from alcohol. Like you, you've been conditioned since birth to believe something. So it's really hard to be like, is that not true? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the cons the idea that fat is bad and thin is good in every single way that you could possibly experience that. Right. I mean, there's lots of different ways in which we think fat is bad and thin is good, but that sort of general sense of fat is bad and thin is good is so pervasive that it's like, it's such a bias that we're conditioned into that it's hard to even, it's uncomfortable to challenge it. Right. Yeah. And you're like, you truly are like, but isn't it? that you know what I mean right right yeah you know even if you know enough to know that's crap you still Mm -hmm. sort of believe it and you're like every time you think it you're like wait that's crap this episode is brought to you by better help I don't know about you but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by we're all busy But one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. 
Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. Yep. I, you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, this concept of weight discrimination, right? And sort of discrimination in general, regardless of what kind of discrimination you're talking about, usually is so embedded in the culture that to some extent, you know, it never really goes away. Like anybody who says I have no racial biases or no gender biases, for instance, you know, is kind of full of crap, you know, like they're probably just not totally aware of where their biases actually are. The bias is sort of always there. And our job is to kind of slowly unpeel it, you know, one onion layer at a time. It never fully goes away. There's no human in the United States who's completely free of racial bias or gender bias or whatever the case may be, right? So I would put weight discrimination in a similar category where it's like, it's really a lifelong journey to be challenging this idea that thin is good and fat is bad, right? That is something that we do forever. Even I, after being, you know, a professional in this work for over a decade, I'm still unpeeling the onion layer of my fat phobia. That's the term we typically use for weight discrimination. I'm still unpeeling my fat phobia all the time, constantly. Well, not only that, but like Ingrid said to me, and I've had conversations with her that like fat phobia, weight discrimination is one of the last ones that like is totally out in the open and you can frame it as being helpful or concerned or whatever, but it is something that, you know, clearly in most, most circles, race discrimination, gender discrimination, anything else is something that like, if you think it, you're like, fuck, you better not say it, you know? Right. Like there's shame. We know enough to have shame about our, our, there's a lot yes. of shame around racial and gender discrimination, for instance, um, which, I mean, you could argue that things would be a lot easier and people would be a lot more likely to grow and learn if they, you know, kind of let the shame go and just were committed to doing the work of changing it rather than spending all their time fix, fixating on the shame. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, fat phobia is one of those things where there's no shame about it. We're actually really encouraged to be fat phobic, right? Like yeah. it's politically, there are political campaigns that are encouraging fat phobia all the time, right? There's just no mainstream recognition of fat phobia as being something that's a problem, right? Like you go into the doctor's office and they're actively promoting it as something that's saving people's lives when that is not true. It's actually hurting people and killing people. But for the most part, right, we hear this sort of message. What when we are internalizing fat phobic messages, we're hearing something that we think is like a good kind of almost, you know, mission oriented, you know, save the world from the plight of obesity. You know, that's the message that we hear. So we actually hear the opposite of shame about fat phobia. We hear like this idea that these sort of fat phobic ideals are you know, kind of good for the world, um, even though they are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly harmful. And most people are hurt. I mean, I would say the vast majority of every, I mean, I could argue even everyone to some extent in any body shape or size is ultimately hurt by fat phobia in one way or another. So we like completely dived in without letting everyone know what your story is, how you came to do this work and even what is the work you do. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. 
So, I mean, I'll start by just sharing a little bit of my story since I already kind of began that. But like I said, I, I was put on my first diet at a really, really young age. And so from as far back as I can remember, I sort of always lived this life of my body's not okay. I need to be actively trying to control my size. I definitely internalized a message that, you know, I just naturally have a bigger appetite than I'm supposed to have. And I kind of have to sit on my hands and, uh, and try not to eat so that my body doesn't get to, to become this sort of unattractive, not okay thing, right? Um, and sometimes I felt like my body was an unattractive, not okay thing. In fact, most of the time I felt that way when I was a kid into my teenage years and into my early 20s when I finally sort of started really working on this issue. But yeah, my whole life starting from as far back as I remember, I was constantly trying to diet, trying to control my weight, trying to control my food, right? That was the primary focus was control the food, control the food, don't eat that, don't eat this, right? Um, you know, whatever it may be, counting calories one day, cutting out carbs another day. I mean, there was always some like new thing that I was trying to try to get control over my food and my body. Um, but ultimately, like most people, I ended up falling off of every diet wagon that I started at, that I started doing eventually, right? Like there came a point where no matter what I was trying, whether it was calorie counting or, you know, eating portion control or cutting out this macronutrient, cutting out carbs, whatever the attempt may be, whatever the lifestyle change I was trying to make would be, there would come a point where I fail at it. Right? I would always fall off of the wagon, right? And as I got older and my dieting attempts got more and more intense, the falling off of the wagon got more and more intense as well. I think about it like a pendulum swing. It's like the more I intensely I was restricting, the more intensely I would kind of binge in the opposite direction, right? Until, you know, I really, you know, eventually was diagnosed with binge eating disorder, which I think is a super misunderstood issue. But, you know, I really identified with this concept. I kept thinking to myself, why can't I stick to my diet? Why can't I keep my food under control? Again, it really reinforced this idea. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my body, something wrong with my appetite, right? Why can't I keep myself from you know, eating XYZ thing. And so this sort of pattern of desperately trying to control and then falling wildly out of control continued and got more and more intense until I was eventually again diagnosed with binge eating disorder and kind of went on a recovery journey. The challenge with the getting being diagnosed with binge eating disorder was that most people really misunderstand binge eating disorder. They think of binge eating disorder as a problem with self-control, like the issue that you can't control yourself, the issue that you must have some deep, deep psychological problem where you're addicted to food, much like you might, someone might be addicted to alcohol. But what they completely ignore is that sort of restrictive dieting, that attempting to control food which really is like fuel for the inevitable fall, right? So there's a relationship between binge eating and restriction. It's like the more intensely I pull back a bow and arrow, the more you know intensely it's going to fly in the other direction the second I let go, mm -hmm. right? And that's really a great metaphor for the diet binge cycle, right? The more intensely I'm kind of trying to control myself and trying to be good and trying to hang on, Right. The more intensely the bow is going to fly in the other air, in the other direction, the second I let go, it's like, oh, I already uh, messed up for today. I might as well eat everything in my kitchen cabinets. And then like day one starts tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be good. I'll get back on the wagon and I'll, you know, lose the weight. But, you know, I've already screwed up today. So I might as well eat everything that isn't nailed down. 
And that's so similar to when we drink, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was like, I'll start on Monday, right? That's always right. the thing. Or I'll start on Sunday. And like that goes yep. on for years, for years of yeah. like, you know, and I know, and I actually want to have you talk about this because a lot of women think that like giving up alcohol is similar to going on a diet, right? Like I just need to mm. do X and it's different completely, which most people like don't understand. And I, I'm still, like I said, I'm still processing and working through all my like ingrained beliefs from my whole life, but the emotions are so similar. Like, why can't I be normal? What's wrong with me? Why don't I have any self-control? The, you know, why can't I do X like a normal person? I'm on the wagon. I'm off the wagon. I'll start Monday. Like the language of beating yourself up and blaming yourself and just this isolation and shame, it is similar. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, the primary difference between the two is just sort of the physiological need for food when like sobriety, it's like you don't need alcohol to survive, right? You actually can cut alcohol out which yeah. is very different, which I think like that's where, where people start to get the, the comparison gets complicated is when, you know, we think, start to think about, um, you know, if we do have a moment where we think we've eaten too much or binge or have some sort of shame spiral around that or whatever, the instinct is to try to eat less, yeah. perhaps, and usually attempt some sort of control, which might not be in alignment with what our bodies really need, right? Yeah. And that's where we start to get into this real like swings back and forth, classic diet and cycling is that the attempts at control we put around food are usually not in alignment with our natural biological instincts around food, which yeah. in that way, you know, I think of like, you know, dieting sort of is the beginning of the dysfunction. Whereas, you know, I think with alcohol, like, I mean, you are more of an expert in alcohol, certainly than I am, but you know, there's at least sobriety is an, is an option, right? Yeah. Like, there's, there's, well, you can't be from food, like you just exactly. Can't. And so it is, you know, the, the fabulous thing about stopping drinking, and I know most of the women here don't believe me, but it's true, is hmm. the further you get away from drinking and trying to control alcohol, the less it absorbs your energy and thought process. And, yeah, you know, like the less that it, you know, people are like, oh my God, I just don't want to think about drinking or not drinking forever. Is this what it's like? And the answer is no, but you can't get away. Like right. your body needs food. It's almost not as simple. You know, the, the comparison that I kind of like is like, okay, so the farther you get away with drinking, the less drinking takes up your thoughts. I would say the farther away you get from dieting, and restricting and trying to control your weight. And, you know, the farther away you get from like the obsessing with, about how am I going to lose weight? How am I going to try to control my food? The farther you get away from diet culture, the less foods on your mind, the less, the more easeful you feel in your life. And in turn, therefore, binge eating drops off as well, right? Like mm -hmm. if I'm not dieting, if I'm not obsessed with food, I'm not constantly trying to control my food, right? If I'm not constantly, I think of it as like, hanging off the side of a cliff, trying not to fall. If I'm not in that posture 24 seven, you know, I'm not going to fall, right? Like you can only fall off of a, like there's, there's sort of something to be said for, um, the less I'm dieting and the less food is taking over my thoughts, 
the less likely I am to also have this reaction to dieting, which is binge eating, and to some extent, emotional eating as well. And I mean, I think it would be interesting for us to talk about the difference between binge eating and emotional eating, because those two things also get kind of confused a lot, um, especially for folks who do have histories of addiction or histories of, um, you know, using various substances or behaviors as coping mechanisms. Should we talk, should we chat about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah. So binge eating is basically my definition of binge eating is by definition a reaction to dieting. It's, oh my gosh, I haven't had a piece of bread in four weeks. Screw it. I'm going to just have like every cracker in my cupboard until like there's not a single piece of carbohydrate left in my apartment, right? Like it's, it's this feeling of falling. It's a, it's a dramatic falling off the wagon after a period of intense deprivation or even just deprivation. It doesn't even have to be intense deprivation. Basically just a period of deprivation followed by some sort of rebellion mm. maybe is a better, better way of thinking about it, right? A sort of react, a rebellious reaction against being put in a cage with food, which, right, which us as animals, we're really not meant to be in a cage with food. We're meant to be able to eat naturally according to what our bodies intuitively and instinctively want to eat. Emotional eating, right, is a little bit different. Emotional eating is, oh, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm anxious, I want, you know, I'm going to have a cupcake to soothe myself, which is very different than screw it, I'm going to have the whole box, right? Screw it, I fell off the wagon, so I'm going to have the whole box. Those are kind of, they're two, they have different energy behind them, right? Mm -hmm. There's a different energy between, oh, I'm kind of like bummed out or anxious, I'm just going to kind of soothe myself with food and this sort of falling off the wagon eating that, you know, dieters often find themselves in. Now, these two things can and often do intersect, right? So a lot of the times, if you are a person who is a dieter and all of a sudden you're feeling like, oh, I'm sad, I'm anxious, I'm lonely, I'm whatever, I think I'll just, you know, oh, I'm just going to have a little bite of something to make myself feel better. But then all of a sudden you go into judgment about that bite, right? You're like, oh, I'm so bad. I did this. I might as well eat everything. And then day one starts again tomorrow. I've already broken my diet. Day one starts tomorrow. Emotional eating can really quickly turn into binge eating for people who have that mindset around food. So I think of it as like, 
emotional eating doesn't have to be the end of the world, right? Like a cupcake when you're sad is a lot more functional than a bottle of wine when you're sad, right? Like I actually think emotional eating is a relatively, you know, it's a relatively harm reduced coping mechanism on the spectrum of coping mechanisms. It's not the end of the world. It's kind of like in the middle in terms of consequences. But if you, you know, immediately start judging yourself and beating yourself up for the fact that you had a cupcake when you're sad, that can turn into like this much bigger dramatic thing, which ultimately is where you start to see kind of bigger types of dysfunction, like bigger kind of, you know, uh, falling off the wagon, dramatic kind of more classical binge eating followed by, oh my gosh, got to get my food under control tomorrow. Now I'm dieting hardcore again. And the cycle repeats. Yeah. So does that distinction kind of make sense? That's a big distinction because I think it helps people understand you know, when I say, oh, but, you know, if you stop dieting, you'll stop binge eating. A lot of people hear that and say, but I binge when I'm sad or I'm lonely or I'm anxious. And kind of getting that distinction is really important. The distinction between emotional eating and binge eating. Most people who have a lot of body image issues or most people who are dieters or restrictors or, you know, will have some combination of both happening in some way, shape or form. Another thing that's, I think, interesting to note about emotional eating is that emotional eating, even just like pure, like I'm just eating to soothe, no big deal. That emotional eating in general is much more common in people who have a history of restriction. It's almost like having had a history of dieting sets you up to be a person who finds food more comforting and more more soothing, right? Mm -hmm. And there's maybe biological reasons for that, right? Like if I've spent a good portion of my life thinking that food's uh, you know, that food's something that needs to be controlled or that food's like a scarce resource that I need to not eat too much of, you know, I'm probably going to have a more attached relationship to that food emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting to me and something that I haven't really thought about before. And I'm still kind of wrapping my head around. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, is super common when I start working with women or even just women on this path of being sober curious or trying to stop drinking is, you know, it's a really complex mix of the reason that alcohol isn't working in their lives, right? And why Mm. they're just sort of sick and tired. One of the things that often pushes women over the edge to say, okay, I'm going to frigging stop and, and not drink right now is actually because they don't like the way they look, right? They get to the point where they're like, I've gained weight. I look like shit. I don't like myself. Like it's odd because alcohol has so many negative impacts, but that sort of surface conditioned impact is the one that often pushes women over the edge. And then, you know, when they stop drinking, people typically begin looking better pretty quickly. Like your face is less red, your face is less bloated, your eyes are brighter, your skin is better. You know, you start looking a lot better. And of course, everyone is happy about it because like you look alive again, right? You look, you look happy, you have energy. And yet a lot of women are like, why am I not dropping pounds like crazy? Because they, they sit there and say calories in, calories out. A bottle plus wine a night is X number of calories in a week. Why is, you know, why am I not dropping this weight? And so Mm. can you talk about sort of the calorie exchange and sort of why diets kind of don't work or why it doesn't work that way? So this, so I mean, 
basically, our bodies are actually much better at weight regulation than people think they are, right? We internalize this idea from diet culture that I am in control of my weight, right? That I decide how much I weigh. And the way that I decide that is by controlling my food. One of the reasons why people binge when they try to control their food is because if you eat less than your body wants, you're going to be have symptoms of hunger chronically, right? You're going to be just obsessed with food, want to eat all the time, feel like you're insatiable, right? I mean, our body basically increases obsession with food and increases focus on food when it's uh, underweight, essentially, basically. And that could be underweight by five pounds, right? That could be like, I got sick with mono, dropped some weight, and then the next week I'm like ravenous. And like, I'm like eating everything that isn't nailed down, basically catching up on the calories I missed when I had mono. Right. So our bodies are actually constantly doing exa- everything that they can to regulate our weight and keep our weight specifically at some kind of the term is set point weight, right? The natural set point weight that our individual unique bodies want to be. Here's the issue. Our natural set point weights are individual and incredibly diverse. Most a good portion of people arguably like at least half of uh, people's natural set point weight will not fit into this very, very strict definition of normal weight, according to BMI calculations that are like a, you know, pretty relatively new idea in medicine. So we have this idea that a normal weight looks basically like a very specific type of thin person. Mm -hmm. And that is just not in alignment with what we're seeing when we look at the general swaths of population, you know, swap populations of people, you know, there you could have two folks who eat, uh, who are the same size. One has to drive themselves crazy, starve themselves in order to be that weight. The other person is just that way naturally. That's their natural set point weight. They don't have to control their food and deprive themselves and be obsessed with food and basically have disordered eating in order to maintain their weight. They just are that weight. That's just their genetic natural weight. Other people's genetic natural weight are bigger, right? And that is the reality of the situation, whether or not we want to believe that or not. I mean, this is just, there's so much data and evidence to support this concept of weight set point theory. I mean, we could go into all of it. I mean, there's just a ton out there. But basically, one of the reasons why the war on obesity has failed, one of the reasons why uh, you know, nothing is really happening. You know, we, everyone's on a diet, everyone's trying to control their weight, but generally speaking, weights aren't really changing that much. And there are lots of different reasons for that. I don't want to totally, completely pin it entirely on genetics, but genetics play a much bigger role than people would like to believe. Mm-hmm. And some people are really just, bodies do actually come in different shapes and sizes. And that is the reality of the situation. So, Here's the thing that's interesting about like drinking, drinking, and people always say like, oh, those calories don't count. And they kind of like, I get what you're saying. It's like the calories from alcohol or you know, you're not getting a ton of nutrition, obviously, but they still do count as calories. They are still going into your sort of general calorie count for what you need to maintain your set point weight. So if you take out calories from wine, um, you're probably going to have to put some calories back in. <laughs> To kind of make up for those. I think that there's actually a natural thing that happens, you know, when people, if people are really heavy drinkers and they're drinking, you know, 600, you know, 500 to a thousand calories a day in alcohol, 
um, those calories don't just go away when you stop drinking necessarily. There's a really good chance if those calories were contributing to part of your weight subpoint regulation that you're going to need food to replace that alcohol when you quit drinking. Does that make sense? It totally does. And yeah, one thing that I, you know, you, okay. So I told you before we got on this call, I'm going to say the wrong thing and I want you to correct me because I'm okay. sort of new. Let's in this, do it. One thing that I heard that actually for the first time made this whole thing make sense to me about how we're always trying to diet into a certain specific cultural ideal and then blaming ourselves and think we have control over it was someone yeah. mentioned that like, so for example, dogs, not that I'm saying anyone's a dog, but like right. the ideal body type, like somehow society decided that the ideal body type is a Pomeranian, right? And yep. like, yeah, every like woman you see on the fitness influencer is like a Pomeranian. And so, you know, but maybe you're a German shepherd, maybe you're a pug, maybe you're a like right. a Labrador. Mastiff. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're a golden retriever. And like, how sad it would it be if like, every Labrador spent their entire fucking life trying to not eat so they could be a Pomeranian when they're never going to be a Pomeranian. Exactly, exactly. And it's funny, because I feel like even when people are going through that time where they're really being good, and they're hanging on and they're losing weight, which for most people is a temporary short, you know, short term period of time before they end up kind of rebounding. But it's like, even then, you're not a Pomeranian. You're just a starved golden retriever. Oh, my God. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, and it's just miserable. You know, it's just like a miserable. And most people cannot maintain it. Most people cannot hang on to that, right? Like, it's like at some point, it might feel really good in the beginning because you're getting praise or whatever, right? You just feel like you're, yeah. you so you feel so in control, which is a really... I mean, talk about anxiety, right? Especially for folks who have drinking problems, often have anxiety issues, right? Dieting is a, is a coping mechanism for anxiety. It's a way to feel more in control about life. It's a way to feel like everything's going to be okay because, you know, I look great and everyone's going to love me, right? Like there's this yeah. sense of feeling in control when my food's in control, which is what a major way that people uh, manage anxiety, right? I, I think I said to you offline, eating disorders are essentially anxiety disorders, not too dissimilar from OCD. It's like, as long as everything's in control and I've got my food and weight under control, I feel okay. I feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, even when you're in that state where you're like, I got this, I feel so good. There's going to come a point where the impacts of self-starvation or the impacts of weight suppression, which I use those two terms interchangeably, is going to just start to wear down on your physical and mental health. And you're going to just not be able to hold yourself back from rebounding in the other direction. And personally, I think that that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that you, you know, stay in that weight suppression period and really do damage to your health, right? Kind of osteoporosis, clinical eating disorder, you know, I think not rebounding is a worst case is a worst case scenario in a lot of situations, because you have to, again, you're just a starved golden retriever. You're not a Pomeranian, you're just a starving golden retriever. Oh and that's and not what's a fun crazy thing to be. is like, it's all about the society we're raised in, right? Because with dogs, again, not that anyone's a dog, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, like we love fucking golden retrievers. Like everyone has a different right. absolute favorite dog. Like some people are like damn corgis or like pugs or <laughs> Labradors, right? Like we're not like, if we yep. saw a starving golden retriever, we'd be like, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen. 
Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white-knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is sad. I I feel that way often um, when I know that I'm seeing somebody in my life who is intentionally going into a very strict diet and loses a bunch of weight you know, when most of the world is being like, great job, you look so amazing. How can I do that? My heart hurts, because I know what's going on behind the scenes. And even if they feel really great egoically for a short period of time, like I know that that's, you know, not going to end well for them, and that they're ultimately kind of hurting themselves in service of this fat phobic ideal. And it just makes me sad on multiple levels, makes me sad for the individual makes me sad for the culture that we live in, right, that this is even a situation that we're in, you know, that especially women, I mean, this is an issue that disproportionately affects women, you know, they, we spend so much of our energy, um, just trying to be thinner, just trying to like shove our square pegs of a body into the round hole society dictates for us. And how miserable is that, right? I mean, realistically, it's like, I think this is Naomi Wolf says, this is like the one thing that really holds women back. It's like, if you really want to, you know, weaken women, as like a gender, as like a political group, uh, tell them they're not thin enough. And then they'll all just have to spend all their time dieting. They won't get very much else done. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. And one thing that, I mean, so much, my mind's like racing on like seven different ways we could take this. But one thing that popped up for me was when you said it's ultimately like dieting, weight suppression, trying trying to control it, it's ultimately like an anxiety disorder, right? Like trying to feel like everything's going to be okay and that you're good and therefore you will be loved. 
And I find that like a lot of the women who listen to this, and I, I'm raising my hand as one of them, are like this combination of this overachiever, people pleaser, which is very, very yeah. similar, right? Like you're running yep. yourself into the ground. Yeah, to yep. basically to never let a ball drop. Therefore, you can never be criticized. Therefore, you will be safe or some crazy combination right. of that. Right. When people stop dieting, when folks stop dieting or be like, okay, I just can't live in this constant state of tension around food all the time where I'm just like constantly either, you know, trying not, you know, hanging off the side of the cliff, trying not to fall or and then falling and then climbing back up the side of the cliff again, right? Like when people kind of really get that this way of living isn't working for them and really, you know, try to stop dieting, a big, that's when actually real feelings come up. Mm -hmm. That's when they start to feel the pain of vulnerability. That's when their childhood wounds come up. That's when, I mean, I would argue a lot of our body image pains are childhood wounds, unlovability stuff, unworthiness stuff. All of our dark shadowy feelings tend to come up when we stop dieting, right? Because we actually have to be with the feeling. We have to actually be with vulnerability. We have to be with imperfection, which, you know, I think of as really important skills for life, right? Um, but it can be uncomfortable. And this is where, you know, dieting, recovery from dieting is no joke. Um, You know, you're going to go through a real emotional process of having to be with your real feelings when you stop trying to control the world through controlling your body size. Yeah. Well, so you said that diet recovery is real work. So like, how do you even do that work? And what's the end goal? So you know, different people have different experiences. And I imagine this is very similar to drinking, right? Like some people have to like try getting sober 50 times before they actually get sober. Some people have to, some people just like, you know, hit a bottom, that's that. And they quit drinking. And, and <laughs> I would say like every single drink. woman has to try like hundreds of thousands of times to, to like <laughs> control or moderate or stop or take a break. I mean, I don't know a single person who's been like, yeah, I don't think I like that anymore. I think I'm going to stop. I mean, just so you know, it's like this very similar tortured relationship of like trying and failing. (laughs) Right. So I think it's the same for dieting, right? Most people, the vast majority of people edge out of dieting over time through a process of kind of seeing the pattern, seeing how dieting hurts them, right? Just like seeing how drinking hurts them. I see how dieting hurts me. Okay, I'm going to try to let this go. Then difficult feelings come up. That's what happened. I stopped dieting. I stopped trying to use dieting as a coping mechanism to make myself feel better and control all my emotions. All the difficult feelings come up, the vulnerability, the imperfection, having to face the fact that I do have a real body and that I might actually just be a golden retriever and all of the things that I make that mean in society. All those feelings come up. All that shadowy stuff comes up when I stop dieting. And then maybe I get kicked back into the diet again because I can't handle the emotions, right? And then I go back and I'm like, oh, no, 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 I got to get back, right? It's same, I imagine very similar with drinking, right? Quit drinking, get sober, big feelings come up, feels overwhelming, can't handle it, start drinking again, right? And you slowly develop the window of tolerance to be able to learn how to deal with our feelings in a different way, right? And there's various things that kind of come up. We also start to become more convicted maybe in the idea that drinking doesn't work for us or dieting doesn't work for us. And that kind of motivates us to be with the big difficult feelings. But that's sort of the process with most people with dieting. Most people with dieting, they kind of try to let go of control. They try to let go of dieting. 
try to eat intuitively, which is, you know, the primary kind of um, way that people kind of attempt to stop dieting, right? Because a lot of people, when I say stop dieting, they're like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I even eat? I don't even know what it means to stop dieting. So we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, I think letting go of dieting is probably not too dissimilar from letting go of drinking in the sense of like, you know, you kind of attempt to do it and then feelings come up, difficult feelings come up, you might get shoved back in and then it doesn't work for you inevitably. And then you kind of feel more convicted and letting go of dieting again. Maybe you get oh my a little God. bit more skilled like at dealing love with the that things. When you, I've never heard that before of like, you try to stop dieting and, you know, just have a normal relationship with food. And then all these feelings come up of like, unworthy, you know, that you are like, okay, I'm on the right path. I'm losing weight. I'm, you know, you're, you're (laughs) suppressing food. You're, you're, you know, and so, and and you're like, oh my God, of course you see everything around you in society. You know, you're trying to be okay with like all your internal judgments about your body and your food and your worth and what it means for your career and love and everything else. And then you're like, I can't take these feelings anymore. I'm just going to fucking go on another diet. Exactly. I mean, that's basically what the process is. I think of dieting as the primary coping mechanism. Most people think of, oh, binge eating and emotional eating. That's the coping mechanism. I actually think that that's sort of short-sighted. It's really dieting is the primary coping mechanism. Emotional eating and binge eating are common symptoms that often go hand in hand with dieting. But uh, yeah. And, and there's some exceptions to that. Again, of course, there are some folks who've never dieted who will sometimes eat a mo- you know, sometimes have a cupcake to get a little pleasure and that's fine. But generally speaking, people who have quote food issues that are actually really deleterious on their quality of life, they almost always are dieters. They yeah. like dieting is the thing that sort of predisposes us to these other behaviors, right? So unless we kick the dieting, the chances of kicking the binge eating are really low. Um, and even emotional eating, you know, kicks up into way higher gear when we're dealing with dieting because our life revolves around food, right? Like we're yeah. just obsessed with food all the time. Dieting predisposes you to food obsession first and foremost. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like that's sort of my kind of point of view that I think is really different is you know, dieting is the core coping mechanism. Like the first thing I have to do, if I want to deal with my emotional eating and my binge eating, the first thing I actually have to do stop dieting, right? Because letting go of binge eating or dealing with emotional eating, those things, it's very difficult to do those things if I'm on Atkins. It's just very, it's just biologically, like we're predisposed to binge eating and emotional eating if we're, if we're trying to restrict our food or try to control our weight. Yeah. And one of the things that I hate that when, when Ingrid told me this and I started like, now I'm following, you know, a bunch of people on Instagram who are sort of around this the work that you do and, and changing my perception on it in the same way. I follow a lot of people who no longer drink just because, you know, the, the messages you receive are, are so important in shaping your beliefs, but like a lot of people don't even realize that they're dieting. Like it's just so ingrained. They think they're just quote unquote being healthy, right. Or being moderate or what, like you don't (laughs) even realize all the messages you've ingrained that are influencing your choices. Right. I will often just say to people like, well, are you, you know, I, I actually prefer terms like watching your weight or like being, you know, you know, things like that. Most people can cop to that. 
Yeah. Most people be like, yeah, my desire to be thin or my desire or my fear of fatness is influencing my decisions around food, right? <laughs> like, or I like yeah. that word that you used, editing, right? Well, most people can cop to that. Most people can cop to the idea that in some, you know, way, shape or form, I am trying to control my food through like some intellectual choice rather than listening to my body and let my body really, my natural animal instincts around food run the show. And I think this is actually a really good, like last thing to talk about is, you know, when people say, well, if not dieting, then what, right? Like, what do you mean? Stop dieting? What does that even mean to stop dieting? If I'm not dieting. How would I eat? Like what other way is there to eat? Do I just eat brownies all day? Yeah. And the answer, right? The answer, <laughs> the opposite of dieting is not eating brownies all day necessarily, unless you're super underweight and starving, in which case your body might want brownies all day to just get the weight back on. But for the most part, right? Generally speaking, for like healthy, you know, weight restored people, right? Like my day to day life, I'm not eating brownies all day. I'm listening to my body. I'm listening to my natural instincts around food. I'm listening to things like hunger and fullness signals. I'm listening to like, you know, what would feel good in my body, right? Eating brownies all day isn't going to feel good in my body. I'm going to feel sick at the end of the day, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm actually listening. What does my body want? What is my body craving? What would make her feel good? And choosing, making decisions around food from that place, as opposed to either denying what she wants, not listening to her, shutting her down, just choosing foods based on what my mind thinks will make me thin, and then, of course, you know, inevitably rebelling. And usually when I'm rebelling, you know, oftentimes when I'm rebelling, I'm not thinking about her either. I'm just like completely being like, oh, my God, last chance for brownies for the rest of my life. I'm going to eat the whole pan. Day, day one starts tomorrow. Right. So the whole diet binge cycle, it's really it's a strong disconnection from our bodies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, the opposite of dieting is to come back to listening to our bodies rather than making decisions around food with like our shoulds. And our this is what will make me thin and our other kind of, you know, mind, mind games that we play with food and just be like, okay, screw the mind games, screw the rules, screw what the blog posts tell me to eat. Let me actually like feel myself. Let me actually come back to, wait, am I hungry? What am I hungry for? How hungry am I? And that's like, hard in like good? both ways, right? Because like, it's hard in terms of like, okay, I feel like I should diet. So I'm not going to eat the second helping or I'm not going to eat the bread with dinner. I'm just going to do the steak and the veggies. But like, also, mm -hmm. if you're listening to your body and you're like, oh, I'm actually not that hungry. Or I'm not hungry for this. It can feel mm -hmm. rude, right? I mean, my family eats together mm -hmm. at dinner every night and like, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like if you go over to someone's dinner and you don't feel like eating something or you're not that hungry, you might eat anyway because you feel like you're rude or you don't want to turn it down or you know what I mean? Like it's, it's all yeah, about definitely. fitting in and people pleasing and doing what is <laughs> socially acceptable in your personal circle or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we definitely get that on the, uh, on the both sides, right? Like I should eat that or I shouldn't eat that in front of other people. I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a whole thing. Um, you know, I have sort of mixed feelings about that because there's a part of me that's like, okay, it's okay if I have a little something when I'm not hungry, it's not the yeah. end of the world. Probably less harmful than not eating something yeah. because, you know, I'm afraid of, uh, you know, I'm going to be judged for my weight or whatever, right? But yeah, I think that you're right. There's there's definitely the mind games, right? That's what I think about it. It's like making decisions with food based on my mind and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts 
right, yeah. is pervasive in our culture on multiple levels in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, and intuitive eating, right, which is, I mean, there's a great book that's kind of like the Bible of the anti-diet movement or one of the Bibles. There's a few Bibles um, is, you know, really about kind of coming back to what does my body actually really want, right? And And what's interesting about that is that is also can be a practice for coming back to my body in ways that have nothing to do with food, right? Coming back to my feelings, right? So much of anxiety management, for instance, is coming back to my body, coming back to this moment, being willing to feel difficult feelings rather than resist them, right? That all you could argue, it's a similar skill set. It's the skill set of being connected and attuned to my body rather than being a floating head, um, which is how most of us are trained to be in this culture. Yeah. And just believing and feeling that you're okay and that you will be safe and loved and connected and appreciated regardless of all the things, right? What you look like, how much you do for other people, how nice you are, how hard you work, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big, there's a lot of cultural wounding to heal in any of these, I think, um, you know, uh, addiction or addiction related or disorder, you know, mental health disorder, um, recovery processes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. When it is sort of true, right? Like when you're like, Oh, I need to be confident in myself no matter what, and believe I'm going to be accepted and loved. Like a lot of the messages you get are, you were sort of inherently smarter, better, more disciplined, more in control prettier if you do weigh less, right? Yeah. And and so this is this is where I think, you know, we start to get into kind of again, this reality of fat phobia, this unfortunate reality of fat phobia, this unfortunate reality of weight discrimination. And, you know, the question at that point becomes, yeah, fat phobia is real, right? There is, uh, you know, not everyone is gonna love me as a golden retriever, right? I mean, that's the truth, right? Not everyone loves golden retrievers. Um, and so then the question becomes, how do I choose myself, right? Yeah. How do I love myself um, and focus on the people who do love golden retrievers? That's my point of view is like, I want to put my energy into loving people into, you know, into relationships with people who love me for who I am, rather than trying to change myself to get the approval of somebody who just isn't going to. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or isn't there yet, you know, who hasn't like exactly. try to educate people. And I know right. I'm like early on the spectrum, but right. It, it, you know, and because like we talked just briefly before we got on the call that you were a sociology major and I was also, I was a combo American history and sociology major in college. And it's mm. fascinating the influences that are within any culture that actually shape the way everybody behaves or behaves in some way or what's given approval. And we don't realize that like the way we think right now is not, it's being influenced by things, right? So the, the sort of thin privilege and, and um, belief that that is inherently good, that wasn't always historically the case, right? Nope, not at all. Not at all. Even to this day, there are, you know, cultures and countries like Mauritania and Africa, I believe. I want to hopefully I'm getting that right. But there are still cultures in the world where fatness is uh, considered beautiful and glorified and idolized. Right. And that's not to say that, you know, those cultures are better than the thin, you know, thin idealization cultures, I think, in general. 
it, you know, body diversity is a good thing. Let's appreciate all the bodies. Right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it, but it goes to show you that, you know, this, it is fashion, right? It's fashion yeah. and, 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 you know, it changes all the time. It's not embedded within us. A lot of people think, well, I just prefer thin bodies and that's the way it is. And that's just how I am as if they were born that way. Yeah. And you weren't born that way. You were trained into that. And you can do, you can untrain, right? I mean, you may never be, I, I don't think it's a realistic goal to say I can completely eradicate myself of fat phobia, just like I don't think it's a realistic goal to completely eradicate myself of any kind of, um, you know, discriminatory brainwashing that I've received since birth and continue to receive every day in this culture. Yeah. Um, but we can, we can do the work to slowly unpeel the layers of our fat phobia, just the way we do the work to unpeel the layers of, you know, gender discrimination, uh, racial discrimination, et cetera. Yeah. And you can even see that subtly. I mean, I think as you look back through decades and generations, even in our American culture and with fashion, especially for many, many years, probably since magazines were started or, or things like that, um, been sort of thin is better, but the degree of what was considered thin has varied widely and has gone to, you know, like Twiggy versus Marilyn Monroe versus, you know, all the yep. other ones, right? Yep. 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 Absolutely. Even today, right? We have this sort of big booty culture, right? I mean, yeah, but the, the idealized body is a fashion. It's a, it's an issue of fashion largely. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is changing all of the time. It is not embedded within us necessarily. It is part of our training, yeah. cultural training. And I could talk to you all day, but one question I had that, that was really a revelation to me is around that, you know, at some point in, in not so distant history, the BMI scale was sort of put out there and then it was like reduced as to what is healthy or what is considered. Yes. Like, what is that? Cause we're just like, you know, you go to the doctor and they're like, I mean, my kids, you know, you're in the X percentile for height and weight. Right. And right. they chart it and they tell you like, you know, where you are like, Ooh, you're in the, you're, you know, you're in the 99th for weight, but the 75th for height. Like, Oh, God forbid. Right. Um, I mean, these are really arbitrary numbers. So the, so the BMI, the concept of the BMI was invented. I mean, I'm going to get my history wrong in here. I have to brush up on this, but basically it was invented, uh, I think in the late 20th century by some scientist who wanted to create the idealized man. Um, he may, I want to not get this history wrong, but okay. there's a part of me that's like this. I think that this was, there was like, um, like, a what's it called when you're like kind of like genetically profiling people, right? Like yeah. when you're, uh, I forget the term when you're just basically trying to determine like which, which body, literally which bodies are better superior to other, like the superior yeah. man, who is the superior man. And this person was trying to like sort of identify the ultimate superior man. And he decided that the ultimate superior man would be the sort of average weighted person. And so he figured out, he created the BMI um, to basically come up with a number for what the average weight range would be that would take into consideration weight ratio to height, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you just take the average weight, that doesn't take into consideration. That's not like a really good measure of what the idealized weight would be because people are different heights, right? And so your height to weight ratio would matter if you were trying to figure out what the sort of average weight would be to create the idealized man. 
So that's where the BMI initially came from. It was like a science experiment to figure out this, you know, to, to create this sort of superior, I, I want to say this guy was German, but maybe that's completely wrong. <laughs> it would make sense, right? <laughs> like, uh, wanted to create this idealized super superman basically like who is the superior man um, and so he invented the bmi basically to come up with this average range of what is this per- sort of average range and i, I don't know, i think it was maybe a 10 percent range who knows but it was essentially like the average weight range um relative to height that's where bmi comes from relative to height being like sort of the operative word of what makes something bmi versus just taking you know an absolute weight So what ended up happening was insurance companies started to see that there were correlations to different health issues depending on weight, right? So like higher weight people are more likely to have, you know, diabetes or heart disease, for instance. That is actually accurate, right? Um, But the thing that I think gets complicated here is that just because somebody is heavier doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have, you know, diabetes or heart disease. There's just a correlation there. And that's largely because to some extent, um, diabetes, for instance, is a really good example of something that's very related to nutrition, right? So if you're, if you have a, you know, a certain kind of diet, right? If you're not getting enough vegetables, you're not getting enough protein, um, you're more likely to have diabetes and you are also probably more likely to be, to have higher weight, right? To be at a higher weight range. Um, if your blood sugar spiked all of the time, your insulin's up all of the time, I mean, we could get deeper into the science there, but. Basically, right, there's a correlation between certain kinds of illnesses and weight, not a causation, right? There are tons of people who are just genetically bigger, and they might have really healthy diets, and they're just genetically bigger. And those people are actually not at a higher risk of diabetes or heart disease, right? Unless they are genetically predisposed to diabetes and heart disease, which is also a separate thing that can happen, right? So again, sort of whole other conversation that maybe we'll do on a separate podcast. Um, but insurance companies effectively just saw this relationship, right? They saw this relationship between, you know, if you are on the higher end of the weight spectrum or higher end of the BMI spectrum, you are more likely to have these illnesses. They didn't really get into the why or kind of talk about the difference between correlation and causation. They just sort of, as a rule, just thought it would just be easiest for them, right? Just straight up easy way to um, make money, basically, and cut their costs. By just sort of, uh, you know, going across the boards and just being like, okay, we see these correlations. And so, um, there was, I mean, this has changed and there's a lot of politicizing around this about the rules of what insurance companies are allowed to do in terms of increasing premiums based on weight uh, or denying care based on weight. I mean, this is a whole complicated political conversation, but that's essentially where, you know, we started to see this shift into actually using BMI in our medical system was because of this, was because of this correlation that we noticed between higher weights and certain kinds of illnesses, right? So that's sort of where the whole thing comes from. And again, it's a very imperfect system because there are tons of people who are higher weight, who are perfectly healthy, who eat vegetables, who eat well, and they're just genetically bigger. It doesn't necessarily, they're not necessarily at higher risk for these illnesses, but because there are some people who are higher weight that, you know, perhaps, you know, that is related potentially to nutrition um, or illnesses or other things, because this correlation exists, you know, this is where the medical system kind of comes into play and says, okay, we're just going to take a broad sweeping brush and say, you know, fat's not healthy. The yeah. easiest way to reduce your risk of certain illnesses is to lose weight. Yeah. So that's where we kind of get this whole thing. Now, 
just to answer your question about how the BMI recommendations changed, when they use this sort of average BMI as a goalpost of like, if you're in this average BMI range, then you cut your risk relative to being in this higher BMI range. So they're trying to get everyone into this, you know, average man range. In the 90s, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, I think in the early 90s is when they made this change. There was a shift in weights in the United States. So people did get bigger in the United States in the 80s through the early 90s. Again, probably related to things that were going on in the industrialized food system, right? I mean, to this day, right? If you go into low-income populations, you know, living in food deserts where people don't have access, it's 50 miles to get to a grocery store and they're, you know, living off of, you know, kind of corn chips from the liquor store. Yeah, you're going to have increased risk of certain kinds of illnesses as, you know, as a, as a <laughs> uh, impact of that, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, basically in the 90s and in the late 80s and early 90s, there was an average increase in weights in the United States, again, probably related to things that were going on in the industrialized food system. And so what the United States did was instead of addressing the issue with our industrialized food system, right, instead of actually doing things like, I don't know, maybe changing the corn subsidies or changing all the policies that created this industrialized food problem, Instead, what they did is they made it an individual responsibility issue. They were like, we're not going to change the environment that's making the population fatter and or sicker. What we're going to do is we're going to say it's your fault that you are getting fatter. This is a personal responsibility issue, not an environmental issue. And what we're going to do is we're going to motivate you to lose weight by recommending, by making the recommendations for average healthful BMI lower. So literally one day, once this policy went into place, you know, 10 million people in the United States woke up, they went to bed average weight according to BMI, and they woke up overweight according to BMI because the metric changed. They lowered the guidelines for healthy BMI because they thought that that would motivate people to lose weight. Yeah, that's what's fascinating, right? They literally overnight changed it. So you went from normal to overweight or overweight to obese. And then we're all like, oh, fuck, I'm a bad human being, you know? Right. As if like this, and this, by the way, failed miserably, right? I mean, this did not work. This did not actually change people's behaviors, right? I mean, people like fat phobia does not work as a motivation for, (laughs) for, uh, for changing biological imperatives, you know? So yeah, so this was, you know, a complete failure, but to this day, it hasn't changed. To this yeah. day, that's been the case, right? So we have, you know, I think more than half of the population is quote unquote obese. Um, but what people don't realize is that if you like look at people walking down the street, you probably, there are a lot of people in that obese range that you probably wouldn't think are obese, who probably actually look pretty normal to you, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, but technically, they're in this obese category because the, the healthy weight range is so is relatively narrow now. Yeah. It's narrowed quite a bit, and it's all it's all random. It has yeah. nothing to do with. I mean, it's just well, and with the idea of like they just took the healthy range down, they just like changed the metrics into yeah, something crazy. that like no longer fits or doesn't fit or maybe never fit most of the population. Like what's crazy is that 
you know, most of the stores, right, they, the quote unquote, normal stores, they, they phase out at size 16, right? But I've heard. And yeah, like, or even like, lower. Some, some of them even stays out at size 12. Yeah. You know? And like, you Crazy. really can't, most of the population, most of the American population is above that, right? But like, you can't shop at exactly 90% of stores. Like, that's insane. Yeah. Half of the United States population can't shop at 50% of retailers would be my guess. I think a conservative underestimate. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy in terms of like sending the message that your body is bad. Yep. Yeah. So this is where this is a really good example of what we call institutional fat phobia. Fat phobia that is not just, oh, I'm being judged by people. Fat phobia that actually has like policy implications for what people in this country can and cannot do. Right? Active discrimination that limits people's freedoms and ability to access resources. Yeah. And it's like embedded in the culture, you know? Yeah. Like people that, right, people don't even question. They're just like, oh, I'm plus size. I can't shop at that store. It must be my fault that I can't shop at that store. That's most people's experiences. their fault that they can't shop at those stores. Very rarely do people think this is screwed up that, you know, 60% of the stores in the United States don't make clothing for half the population. Yeah. And so like, they're the, they're the laboratory retriever who's like, I need to starve myself to be a Pomeranian because that's what they sell at Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever it is. Exactly. 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 So that is a perfect example of institutional fat phobia. It's very upsetting. And, you know, I will say what it, you know, when we come, when it comes to institutional access to resources, like fat phobia being an, uh, um, something that, you know, affects people's ability to access goods and services. Something that for me is even more heartbreaking is that fat phobia is the number one reason why people can't access, well, maybe not the number one reason, but it's a very, very big reason why people can't access basic medical care. I mean, people are actively denied surgeries, for instance, on the basis of weight. There's an enormous amount of institutional weight discrimination that limits people's access to goods and services that they need to live happy and healthy lives on the basis of weight. And no one, very few people are talking about this as being a real issue because everyone has internalized the idea that if my doctor won't do surgery on me because of my weight, it's my fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting too is, you know, my mother is 74 years old and she, you know, needed a knee replacement and now a hip replacement. And like, dude, most people need a hip replacement at the age of 74, but her doctor told her she needed to lose weight and she is not, you know, 300 pounds or anything like that. They told her she needed to lose weight before she could have a knee replacement. And I'm like, that's insane. She's been trying to lose weight since I was a child. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So like her knee Mm -hmm. literally does not function and she's in daily pain. And they're telling her, do something you haven't been able to do for 50 years before we will help you. This is heartbreaking. Like these types of stories, like this is super unethical care. And what's interesting about this is like, this is how I said before, fat phobia kills. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Like I'm not being dramatic. Like people being denied surgery on the basis of weight is not okay. That is not ethical. It's interesting you bring up knees because there's a ton of research to support the fact that, you know, larger body people end up having more knee issues 
because they can't get the surgeries that they need. So they end up continuing to walk on knees that they shouldn't be walked on. Right. And so it's actually harming their health long term. And for what? Right. I mean, there's some kind of argument that, you know, fat people have a slightly higher chance of complications with surgery, which a lot of people would argue the reason that's the case is because doctors aren't trained as as much to, uh, you know, do surgeries on fat people. I mean, it's just it, the, the institutional fat phobia story just continues on and on. It's like a domino effect. Yeah. And it's like a catch 22, right? For every. Yes. So right. that's super interesting. So I literally could talk to you all day, but you mentioned <laughs> earlier that because I'm learning so much and it's fascinating and the whole sociological society stuff just blows my mind. But you talked about the, you know, anti-diet Bibles and that there were a couple of them. And if someone's like interested in this and wants to follow up, what are the books that you would recommend or the people? I mean, everyone should go to your website, your course, tell us what that is first, but then I'd love to hear the books. So, I mean, for anyone who kind of identifies with the sort of diet binge cycling, disordered eating, food obsession, kind of having the ticker tape tape in the back of your head, thinking about food all day long, definitely check out my uh, video training series at stopfightingfood.com or my website, just at isabelfoxandduke.com. The first thing you'll see is my blog. And there's a ton of just like, easy, free information to just learn all of this. Like the first three blog posts are pretty much explain like my, like a lot of the core foundations of what we're talking about in a really simple way. So it's a great place to start. If you're interested in just kind of getting the general idea, like kind of having your questions answered about some of this stuff. Um, so, but I will also say the two core Bibles, the two core written Bibles that are probably the most popular or kind of the most foundational are in the intuitive eating book, which I've already mentioned, um, which is sort of answers the question, if not dieting, then what? Um, and it's not a perfect book, right? Like, you know, people struggle with intuitive eating and that's why they work with coaches and there's a whole community around intuitive eating and kind of coming back into normal eating and what that means. But I think intuitive eating is the easiest place to start for most people in terms of what does it mean to let go of restrictions? You know, how do you make decisions around food in a non-diet way? Uh, that's a really, that's the book to start with is the intuitive eating book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich. Um, the other kind of anti-diet or diet recovery, um, or really just, you know, anti-weight discrimination Bible, um, is a book called Health at Every Size. So Health at Every Size really focuses on this question that most people have, which is, but what about health, right? Isn't that unhealthy? Right. And we talked a little bit about that today in this episode, right? Kind of dismantling some of the mythology there and kind of talking a little bit about the difference between correlation and causation and genetics and, uh, Pomeranians and golden retrievers. <laughs> right. But, um, but that book really, really, you know, kind of is the, is the Bible when it comes to, um, talking about, you know, what is the real scientific relationship? Like, where does that come from between health and weight? Um, what is sort of assumptions or mythologies that have been driven by the sort of health insurance PMI story? And where, how can people of all sizes actually pursue health um, in an anti-diet way and probably, you know, improve their health significantly? Because as we know, dieting doesn't work very long and isn't really a great uh, you know, it's not super great health medicine, considering the fact that it fails 95% of the time, and usually creates a lot of harmful side effects along the way. 
And the stat that diets fail 90% of the time is a whole nother subject. I mean, I remember talking to Ingrid before and I, you know, I've said this to other people. I'm like, yeah, you know, quote unquote, Weight Watchers did work or whatever it is did work because I've lost 35 or 40 pounds four times in my life, you know, like when I was four times, (laughs) I know. Right. And like, when I was like, you know, before Which my means by definition, and- I was not able to keep it off. No, that's of it. Things. But like, right. in my mind, it worked. Like I have photos right. of me at my wedding when I was 27, you know, at right. quote unquote, my thinnest adult weight. Yeah, no shit. I was dieting for nine months. And then I gained it back right. the minute I, but like, I'm like, no, right. no, that worked. You know, like that. Right. It works temporarily. Yeah. Dieting works temporarily but then it doesn't, right? It works until you eventually can't take it anymore, right? Just this is the diet binge cycling, right? Classically defined. It works, it works, it works, it works. I feel so good. I feel so good. I can't take it anymore. I stop. I gain the weight back. Boom. Rebellion, well, I rebound. I heard the stat that like the stat that Weight Watchers brags about is like people after a year lose 5% of their body weight on Weight Watchers, which like I got to tell you, or five pounds or something. It's something ridiculous and paltry. And I'm like, no one fucking goes on Weight Watchers to lose five pounds. Like, let me exactly. tell you, you know, but exactly. after a year, that's what you're going to do after you go to all the meetings and right. like all the food and buy all the like special bars. Exactly. Like the reality of the situation is that the average weight lost on Weight Watchers is very low. And by the way, that five pounds goes to like zero pounds if you extend the time frame, right? Yeah. If you extend the time frame from, you know, I think of it as like, so for one year, you know, the average weight loss in a study will be five pounds. You extend to two years, it's probably like one and a half pounds. When you extend to three to five years, a lot of people actually gain more weight back than they even started. So the average weight can even go up. Well, um, and that's dieting the is actually average the biggest weight, predictor right? of weight gain. Yeah, exactly. In a it's year, the average, the average weight. weight loss is five pounds. Like that is, that means half of the people did not lose five pounds. You know I mean, what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And then you're like, you. what's yeah. wrong with me? Why can't I stick to this? You know, because the exactly. claims are the before and afters are like, you should be 50 pounds down. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to say, and I know we need to drop up, jump off just because like, this is me being weird, but I totally looked up the most like dogs in America just for a good time. And it is like it's Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, um, sheepdogs, collies, et cetera. But here's what's fascinating. They did dog rankings by men and women. And women thought that the best, dog, you know, like literally, let me show you like ranking women in the hot or not. You know, let me show you two dogs and you tell me oh, gosh. better. I know this is like totally ridiculous. We can cut this part out of the interview. But um, the best ones for women are Shih Tzu, Pomeranians, Bichon Frisbee, and Havanese, the tiny, tiny, tiny ones. But men like the big ones? Yeah, totally. Men like the big ones. Like, But isn't that insane? Like you could show women like dog versus dog, dog versus dog, like in the like rank, which one's hotter or not. And it's like the Pomeranian. That's that oh is the dog that we want to look like. Oh, All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Will you tell us your website again? Thank you. Yeah. So my website with my blog, which is again, great, great little binge worthy blog. If you want to just get the bullet points is isabelfoxanduke.com. 
And then my free video training series, which, you know, is just like a really fun, beautiful, if you prefer video and want to watch some fun videos, kind of getting the general gist of this work, um, stopfightingfood.com. Stopfightingfood.com is where to watch the free video training series. So either or both of those websites are great. I definitely recommend signing up for the video training series because it's also get you on my email list. And um, then we can, I always send out just like great little blog posts. I mean, that's the primary use of my email list is to send out blog posts, which is helpful, you know, educational little tidbits of, okay, how to feel sane around food, right? How to not feel crazy around food, how to not be obsessed with food, how to not be in the diet binge cycle. Um, that's my primary way of communicating with people. I don't use social media that much. So um, yeah, yeah, that's the best way to be in touch. Well, and the first step in any of this is just even becoming consciously aware of it and like educating yep. yourself a little bit. And that's the phase that I'm in after being totally, you know, clueless and just part of the, you know, your, you mentioned fish and water, like you don't even realize. And, yep. you know, so thank you for coming on because I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to share this. I feel like this is a great, we got to, co- we covered a lot. Oh my God. We covered everything. We could have like three more interviews on each subject, but this has been a great, know, a great conversation. So much for having me, Casey. This is great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.